Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month, we hear from an inspirational woman who's long been banging the drum for biodiversity and small-scale farmers around the world. Then it's on to a field-mulching evangelist, and finally, loans for enlightened agriculture. And we finish off with some discussion of how no-till on its own is not always rooted in a more ecological approach. Vandana Shiva is a force of nature. She's an Indian scholar, environmental activist and food sovereignty advocate. She spent much of her life in the defence and celebration of biodiversity and indigenous knowledge. And we've heard her speak a few times. But last month when she spoke at the Farming the Future event that was organised by the Roddick and 18 Foundations, she absolutely blew us away. But what I've learned since then are two simple principles which in a way are in our ancient learning in all cultures. First, that the currency of life is food. What moves through the web of life to nourish life? It's food and nutrition. And when we poison the food web, the highest dharma is the growing and giving of good food. And the highest adharma is getting lazy in agriculture and serving bad food or letting people go hungry. I mean, that's all we have to do. Turn the growing of good food into our sacred duty of being alive on this beautiful earth. And, and that's why we all have to become farmers. Maybe we're just a balcony. When Greece collapsed after 2008, we were there to launch the seed movement and seed freedom movement. And uh, there was this young man who said, but what can I do? Our jobs have gone, our pensions have gone, there's nothing. I said, you have a balcony? Yeah. I said, grow food. He met me later, two years later. He said, I feed my entire street. <laughs> so we've, got, you know, we've been made so deeply to think that money is the currency of life. But money is not the currency of life. It is no currency at all. It is just a medium of exchange. You know, if you look at your notes, it says, I promise to pay the bearer. It's a pure promise, nothing more. We've turned it into not just an end, we've turned it into the measure of our humanity. We've turned it into the new God. The metric of the yield was designed to reduce farming to the production of commodities. And all you measure in yield per acre is the commodity that leaves the farm. Not the state of the farm, not the quality of the food. It's nutritionally empty, toxic commodities that are floating in huge quantity around the world. 90% of the corn and soy are going for biofuel and animal feed, not even to feed people. And that's why the more commodities you have, the more hunger you have. Half of the hungry of the world, half of the one billion hungry are farmers. Half. So our food producers have been turned into the hungry when they have this amazing role to play, to care for the earth. We decided for India to look at all the costs that go into the chemical agriculture system, including the social costs of indebted farmers and farmer suicides, the environmental costs, 
the soil, the death of animals, the death of bees, the disappearance of water. So we worked out just social and ecological $1.3 trillion annually, which is bigger than our GDP, the destruction. And then if you add the health damages, which we haven't done for India, but we have a new manifesto, Food for Health, and we've got a summary of it. So neurological, neurodegenerative diseases, 2.4 trillion annual costs. Autism, 171 trillion. Um, birth defects, 22.9. Obesity, 1.2. Cancer, 2.5. Diabetes, 2.5 trillion. Endocrine disruption, for, for 549 billion. Infertility, 9.6 million and antibiotic resistance, one trillion. Good farming has to be defined as a health sector. It's health provisioning. And not only is it health provisioning for human beings, it's health provisioning for animals, for plants, and it's health provisioning for the planet. Because I see climate change as nothing more than the metabolic disorder of the planet. All because of the huge emissions and there's a focus only on emissions from energy and the energy sector. But 50% emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, come from the industrial food system. The production, the fertilizers, the land use change, growing soya bean in the Amazon, chopping down forests, transport, packaging, food miles, and food waste because the system designed to waste food. Add it all up, it's 50%. And yet, if you work with the earth, we can repair the broken carbon cycle, we can repair the broken nitrogen cycle, which is actually 300 times more deadly in terms of emissions. Nitrous oxide is 300 times more damaging to the environment than carbon dioxide is. We can repair these cycles and heal the soil and grow more food. Soil with organic matter and in our farms and in our members' farms, Organic matter has gone up by 99%, whereas in the chemical farms in our valley, it's gone down by 14%. This is a 20-year study the top soil ecologist of India did. In nitrogen, it's gone down 22% in chemical farms. It's gone up 100% in the organic farms. But zinc, which is a big deficiency and responsible for depression, 37% decline in chemical farms. 14% increase in organic farms. Nobody's putting zinc into the soil. The soil organisms are creating these micronutrients and trace elements. That's why feeding the soil is our first duty. First the soil, and then the family that's growing the food, which is how we'll end hunger in agriculture. Then your local community, which is where the gift of food has to come back. And then high-value products, but low-volume things, so long distance. So trade right now has become, everything you eat has to come from far away. Lots of toxics, you don't know what you're eating. And if you want to know what you're eating, there'll be one trade dispute to trash you. And now with Brexit, the US is just looking at England as the dumping ground of all the worst food and the dismantling of the food and health and safety standards of this country. It's going to be a very important time for the food and farming movement. Biodiversity is the only way you can control pests without pesticides. The only way you can control weeds without herbicides. And it's the only way pollinators get food because we forget the seed we sow, when it becomes a flower, 
is food for the bees. And the bee pollinates, fertilizes the flower, which becomes the fruit. That's the economies we have to build. Where the bee gets honey and the flower gets fertility and neither became less. Because this Cartesian way of thinking mechanically is, if you have more, I have less. Which has also created the illusion of cheap. First, that there has to be cheap food to feed the hungry. That food is not cheap. If you take all those costs to the planet, to the farmers, to our health into account, it's too costly for us to continue to produce. And that's why internalizing these externalities becomes a very important part of it. So it's not cheap. And I think while we address the ecological apartheid which has separated us from the earth, we need to address the nutritional apartheid as that has brought a crazy situation where if food is the currency of our life and the tiniest of bees and the tiniest of babies should be having good food, we have created an assumption <coughs> that the poor can be deprived. That being poor can pull you out of the cycle of life where food is the nourishment. So, and the two apartheids go together, the two separations go together. The only way we'll be able to bring the right to, of all to good food is through the right of all people to grow good food. I've reached the stage where I say the most important thing the earth is asking us to do is put our hands, our heads, and our hearts to her service. Farming is the highest vocation. Cultivating food is the highest thing you can do. Let us make a 10-year plan. And in the 10-year plan is poison-free food and farming, fossil fuel-free systems, cultivating young farmers, growing young farmers, and our university is always there for that service. Thank you. Thanks to our supporters, Rebel Kitchen. Their mission is to redefine health through food, business, and beyond. They have a different kind of health message, one that doesn't separate the individual from the whole, and that is based on actions instead of preaching, because it's all connected. Last month we had a great question from Niall Furlong on Instagram. They asked why, in last month's show, Elliot Coleman said agribusinesses were pushing no-till and chemical inputs. And Niall pointed out that it would appear that no-till, which naturally builds soil health, would not be in agribusinesses' interest. Here's Abby to respond to this question. Thanks so much for asking this question. It brings up a very important point, and we will try and answer what we think Elliot was referring to. No-till agriculture, although generally better for the soil, is not always a particularly ecological approach when applied in isolation. And there are a number of farmers, most notably in the Americas, who are implementing no-till agriculture in a rather chemical-intensive way that has many other negative side effects. In the UK, when people talk about no-till, they're often really referring to conservation agriculture, which actually has three key principles. Firstly, not tilling or not disturbing the soil. Secondly, always keep the soil covered, so for example using cover crops. And thirdly, 
build diversity into your system. So whether that's through rotation or companion plantings. I think what Elliot was most likely talking about here is purely no-till agriculture that is practiced with genetically modified crops plus multiple herbicide applications. And it's a key part of the agribusiness model. This method of no-till farming is common in large parts of the United States as well as South America. Farmers buy seeds that have been genetically modified to be resistant to herbicides. They direct drill those seeds into the land and then apply those herbicides multiple times throughout the year in order to extinguish any weeds that might be growing in the crop. The crop is of course unaffected as it's been engineered to resist the toxic effects of the herbicide. However, the whole ecosystem is probably broken as all other plants are dead and therefore you're back into the cycle of needing insecticides, fungicides, fertilizers and more. Many conservation agriculture farmers in the UK do use a herbicide once a year to kill off the cover crop just before planting their cash crop. But this is a very different approach um, and these farmers are often working to minimize their chemical inputs and, and looking to work with the natural world as much as possible. Hopefully that sheds some light on your question. And as you can see, no-till is not outright good or bad. It's the mindset of the farmer and the journey they are on that makes the difference. The Loans for Enlightened Agriculture program, or LEAP, is an initiative from the Real Farming Trust. They provide a mix of affordable loans and grants, as well as mentoring, to agroecological food and farming enterprises. Robert Reed tells us more. I'm here with Robert Fraser from the Real Farming Trust, who's here today to talk to us about the Loans for Enlightened Agriculture programme. Robert, would you like to tell us more about the programme? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Rob. Um, so, the Loans for Enlightened Agriculture programme, which has been given the acronym LEAP, which I think is quite, uh, quite a nice acronym, um, has sort of evolved out of our previous programme, which was called Just Growth, and uh, Just Growth funded eight uh, agroecological enterprises, food businesses, with a third loan, a third grant, and a third uh, was raised in community finance. And we found that to be very successful, so we wanted to take that to the next stage. And I've spent the last couple of years trying to create this new programme, uh, LEAP, which is wider in its scope and bigger in, in its ambition. So we've raised about one and a half million pounds for the programme. Uh, we're offering affordable social investment loans to eligible enterprises side by side with a grant um, but also crucially a pretty comprehensive mentoring program of business advice and support which will help organizations to develop and become financially viable in the long term. So I think, I think one of the main objectives is to try and offer funding that allows organizations to grow to the next stage Grant funding is becoming rarer and highly competitive, and there's a 99% chance of failure with grants. Um, so we wanted to some, offer something that was between a grant, uh, but not commercial finance, because a lot of the enterprises that we work with are community-based, and they don't have any assets or little track records, so they wouldn't be eligible for commercial finance. That's the package we've put, to, put together, and we launched it at the Oxford Real Farming Conference in January, 
and we had a lot of interest, which is fantastic. We've had 38 expressions of interest so far, and that's only three months in. Um, we're hoping to fund between 20 and 30 organisations. Um, we're really looking for organisations that meet the criteria of enlightened agriculture, uh, which the Royal Farming Trust has been a proponent of for, for some time, which is a mix of, which is based on three, three key principles, agroecology, which I think we all know about, and food sovereignty, again, which we all know about, um, but also economic democracy, and that's one part of the equation that we're really try, trying to encourage, uh, is that communities can have control of their own food systems, but also a say in the businesses that operate in their communities, um, either through ownership or membership, um, or some other uh, activities, voluntary work or whatever. Um, so those are the criteria that we're trying to um, encourage organisations with those criteria to apply to LEAP. Um, the funding that we're offering um, is between £25,000 and £100,000. So we're really looking for organisations that are beyond start-up and at, at a sort of early to intermediate stage in their development and looking for funding for the next stage in their development. Um, you know, grant funding is always going to be really, really important to our sector, especially for startups and very early stage organisations and for research and development. Um, so uh, loan finance probably wouldn't be appropriate for organisations that are, are in that very early stage or startup situation. And once the organisations have uh, looked to scale up, what, what type of impact do you foresee that this programme making? So yes, we're, we're an impact first programme, so you know, we're less concerned about the financial return, obviously, and we want to deliver a social return. That is our primary objective. It's a charitable programme, um, so we want to achieve benefits, public benefits and social impact around community resilience, um, around jobs and livelihoods, and uh, about protection of the biosphere. Um, would you like to say any more about the Real Farming Trust and the aims of that organisation? Yes, yeah, so the Real Farming Trust, uh, many people may already know, that was set up by Colin Tudge and his wife Ruth West. Um, it's been going since 2008. People probably know it, know it best uh, through the much-loved Oxford Real Farming Conference, um, which Colin and Ruth uh, were co-founders of, um, along with Graham Harvey. And that has grown from a... 50 people in a side room as an antidote to the Oxford Farming Conference 10 years ago and this year we had the conference's 10th anniversary um, and it's now grown to over a thousand delegates over two days and is a really special conference that everybody um, seems to love and enjoy and is a great start to the year. So that's one programme that we, we run. We also have Funding Enlightened Agriculture which we've already talked about um, and LEAP sits within that. Um, and we are the Secretariat for the agro APPG in Agroecology, which is the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Agroecology, which is in Westminster. And we're trying to set up now a new initiative called the College for Real Farming and Food Culture, which is uh, Colin Tudge's latest um, programme, which is trying to um, we sort of recognise that agriculture um, cannot be changed ad hoc. Uh, we need to re-examine and restructure the underlying economic principles and the policy environment, the science and technology, um, the moral and arts. We need to look at the, the bigger picture to really allow agroecology to, to flourish um, and to make sure that it, you know, we can really start to transform our food system. So that's, that's an ongoing programme as well.
One of the speakers at the Oxford Real Farming Conference earlier this year was Johannes Storch from the Bio-Gemüsehof farm in Germany. He explained how they grow field-scale vegetables, keeping the soil permanently covered by organic matter and with roots always present. They grow cover crops, cut them to create mulch, and then use spreaders to evenly distribute it along their vegetable beds. They've even developed a machine that penetrates through the thick mulch to plant the seedlings. We spoke to Johannes, and also present is Adam Keyes from the Organic Growers Alliance. I studied organic agriculture, or agricultural sciences in University of Kassel. I'm now a vegetable farmer. Yeah, we want, or we looked into nature and thought, how does nature preserve soil fertility? And uh, we found out that it, soil in nature is always covered and has always active living roots, yeah. which um, keeps up soil fertility. Um, in deserts, we don't have roots and we don't have cover, but we also don't have fertile soils. Mm -hmm. So in farming, we often, we often don't have active roots and don't have soil cover. And we wonder why our uh, humus content is is lowered, or how do you say this, is, yeah, it's um, decreasing. Is decreasing. Yeah. Um, but if we keep up the principles of nature, always roots, always cover, we can increase soil fertility. Yes, the other point is um, we as, as, a, as a farm, we one year we worked with a stopwatch. So <laughs> we timed how long do we take for planting in the mulch, how long is it spreading the mulch, how often do we have to still do some hand weeding, how or not. So we know the data of our crops, the uh, working steps, we, we, we have the facts of that. Yeah. And so we can calculate very precisely if this system is financially also worth, or not worth it, but um, it's paying itself yeah. and um, yes, this we need to do as a farm because we cannot just play. Um, it has, I, I think we ha can be intensive in production and intensive in building up soil fertility at the same time. Mm -hmm. This I think is important and that's why we need many facts yeah. uh, to do that and find a way to keep up soil fertility without reducing production. I mean, in the beginning, it was a lot of learning by doing, also by mistake, sometimes quite frustrating, but um, we kept on going. And um, I would say the last two, three years, we learned that technique has to be very precise, machinery has, has to be very precise so that um, the system works, that we can um, support nature in um, serving us again. Um, let's call it like this, because um, I think we need to empower nature in a way, but we have, we have to do a quite, quite a scientific and quite a precise work in this. It's our part and, it, and we need to understand nature um, in order to do this empowerment. This was one point. The other point I just mentioned with the facts, we really collected data in order to be, to 
watch nature precisely, watch us also precisely. If and um, yes, and another point which was this autumn, which I found out that we have to be consistent in what we are doing. So we're building up soil fertility during a season, but then we we somehow at the end of the season start from the beginning again sowing a cover crop before we do a lot of tillage and so on and we destroyed quite a bit of what we built up during the year so and i saw we have to be consistent in what we are doing and if we if we see the nice result which nature provides we cannot stop there we have to think ahead so it's a journey it's not a, a fixed system it's a journey which we do together with nature and um I think this courage uh, we have to do, have to have, and um, because we have a task also towards society as farmers, I think so. And um, now we we had a drought, a big drought this year in Germany, and um, that's part of climate change. And here we as farmers are a cause for that climate change as we're part of the society, but we are also a big part of the solution and we just we have to see and act our act in our responsibility, which we as farmers have, which is the soil. And then to be honest, to say there was a mistake, but I learned this and that from this, not hiding these mistakes. And this sometimes made my knees a little bit shaky uh, or yes, right. shaky. Yeah. And um, I'm as a young farmer, inexperienced in a way, you know, but uh, this openness was really helping me to come further and pre preventing others to make the same mistakes as I did. So <laughs> these were sometimes shaky moments. Yes. Wow. And so your experiences with roller crimping, because that's something that you, I, I have seen on your website, but you didn't pick up on, and, and so you've just stopped that now. We tried many years to plant into roller crimped rolled cover crops and like three years in a row we had quite some loss there because of mice and stuff like this and and we stopped also because we saw um, that the system of combination combi combining um, in situ mulch which you a cover crop which you grow at the place where you use it Combining it with transferred mulch has the best results. It's the most resilient system, whatever conditions we have. So for us on our farm, this uh, was somehow um, was um, becoming clear that um, it's going this way. And the roller crimping was too um, had to, uh, had a too high risk for us. Yeah, it's quite a um, uh, interesting system if you just roll the cover crop plant in harvest but it's um, this system is quite um, challenging or also sophisticated because you have to make many things right so that it works and um, I think it's hard to make often everything right and in this system which we have now where we combine these two uh, cover crop with the transferred mulch we are better off in every year. Yeah. First step is in autumn, prepare the beds, loosen the soil so that you have mechanically a nice soil structure in the topsoil. 
Next step is sowing the cover crop, September, October. It's a mixture of um, rye grain, hairy veg and winter peas. The roots stabilize the soil and so in springtime we don't need to do any soil cultivation anymore. Um, the cover crop grows and um, produces a lot of biomass, up to 12 tons dry matter per hectare, which we use on the spot as mulch. We flame mold the cover crop and add some transferred mulch that can be uh, cover crop, clover grass or grassland which we mow and cut, which we add on this mulch layer which is produced by the cover crop. Like this we have a, around seven centimeters um, high mulch layer um, in which we transplant with our machine. And by this we don't have any weeds because we don't touch the soil, no weed seeds are germinating. Um, soil structure is so nice that They can just grow there, the plants. Next working step is the harvest. I think it's really interesting, the, the selection of your choice of cover crops. Yes. In England, we, we are predominantly use a, a perennial grass. Yes. And I noticed that you only use the cereal rye, yes. uh, a cereal grass, an annual, essentially an annual grass. And that, that's, is that essential to your system to, for terminating cover crops? Because that's one thing that we have in the UK is oh, well, we need to use the plough because we have to get rid of our cover crop, overwintering cover crop. And the big, the big thing in my mind is that, well, let's stop using perennial grasses and then we can get rid of this, this, you know, yeah. this issue with having to till the soil. Yes, yeah. yes definitely. Um, perennial um, grass or crops we don't use as cover crops um, because we want to terminate them. We also um, grow clover grass. We... Um, have a seven years rotation with two years clover grass and five years vegetables with cover crops in these five years of course mm -hmm. always. Um, it's not always two years sometimes we also make one year clover grass but roughly that's it. Yeah. Okay. But I think it's um, important to um, live the change which uh, I want to see It's one part um, demonstrating post protesting against things and so on, which is, has its place, but I think even more important is to lift the change and put energy and mind into that and uh, speaking faith there and uh, going with enthusiasm and joy into this kind of work, then a change can be made. That's how I experienced the last years And I just want to encourage everybody to do, to do the same. I think a change can be made by this. Just last week we had a great time at the British Podcast Awards and we were so pleased to be nominated in the Bullseye Award category that we won silver for in 2017. Congratulations to all of the winners. It's a really exciting mix of shows, and if you're looking for something new to listen to, I would really recommend you take a look. One of the winners I recommend is Multi-Story from BBC Local Radio, which has an incredible story about a Norfolk farmer's first ever train ride. 
Farmerama is made by Abby Rose, Joe Barrett, and me, Katie Revel. This month, we also had editing support from Susie McCarthy and Louis Hudson. Thanks to Rob Reed for his recorded interview. Community support is by Hannah Soderlund with Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett.